Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. John chapter 3, go down to verse 30. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse. We are now in the book of John. The Bible says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no man receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, forgives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Father, just like that song that Roy just sang, it's hard to imagine what kind of love that you have extended to people like us. I pray that we would grasp that love today in whatever way that we need to. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. As long as it doesn't lead to pride, there's probably nothing wrong with thinking that you're smart. But self-esteem has its limits. Those limits were pushed a couple years ago when a dating website called OkCupid revealed how thousands of its users had answered one particular question in a survey to measure partner compatibility. And this was the question. Are you a genius? Amazingly, according to OkCupid's blogger Christian Rudder, two in five men said that yes, they were a genius. Rudder said two out of five think they are one in a thousand. Now, as there's no scientific definition of a genius, Rudder's estimation is kind of arbitrary. But to qualify for most high IQ societies, such as genius clubs like Mensa, you usually need to have an IQ in the 98th to 99th percentile. So that's about 1 in 100. So there's something seriously wrong when 50% of men think they are geniuses. The wives are thinking, if my husband is such a genius, why won't he stop and ask for directions when we go on a trip? I think we all recognize that humility is important and desirable. It's one of the great Christian virtues, and it is the opposite of pride. But where does it come from, and why is it so difficult to attain? And does anyone, in fact, even possess it? Part of that answer is to be found in the last recorded words of John the Baptist recorded here. For John the Baptist was a very humble man. 
The last time we were together, John the Baptist was teaching us the importance of humility and understanding our place. He will continue to teach us this morning. Look at verse 30 with me. He must increase, but I must decrease. Basically, John is saying, I must disappear in light of the sunrise from on high. This was actually the first statement ever said about John the Baptist. When John was born, his father Zechariah said that John would be the forerunner to the king until he came. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to God our feet into the way of peace. What is that saying? John fades away like the morning mist because the sun, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, has finally arrived. Once again, we are reminded that John understood his place. And really the measure of any success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through that minister. John summarized his views on himself in relation to Jesus in perhaps the most humble statement uttered by anyone throughout all scripture. He must increase, but I, I must decrease. One commentator observes, It is not particularly easy in this world to gather followers about oneself for a serious purpose. But when they are gathered, it is infinitely harder to detach them and firmly insist that they go after another. It's the measure of John's greatness that he did just that. A Presbyterian pastor in Melbourne, Australia, introduced J. Hudson Taylor by using many superlatives, especially the word great. Taylor stepped to the pulpit and quietly said, Dear friends, I am but the little servant of an illustrious master. If John the Baptist in heaven had heard that statement, I bet he would have shouted hallelujah. But what does true humility look like? I like this definition I found. To be humble is to be so sure of oneself and one's mission that one can forego calling excessive attention to oneself and status. And even more pointedly, to be humble is to revel in the accomplishment or, or potential of others, especially with those to whom we are connected to. Humility means two things. One is a capacity for self-criticism. In any area of holiness or conduct, I should always be stricter on myself than I am on anyone else. Or to use the words of Christ, I had better pull the two-by-four out of my eye before I try to remove a splinter out of your eye. It often doesn't work that way, though, does it? It's so much easier to be ultra-critical of your sin, but when I view that same sin in my own life, I can excuse it because of mitigating factors. This is why we need to keep a sober and humble estimation of ourselves. Arthur W. Pink has expressed it this way. Humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is the byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less I shall attain unto humility. But if I am truly occupied with that one who is meek and lowly in heart, 
if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory, glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The second feature is allowing others to shine and affirming and empowering others and enabling them. It's been my experience that those who lack humility are dogmatic and egotistical, and that hides a deep sense of insecurity. They feel that the success of others is at the expense of their own fame and glory. And so if criticism is put forward, they're not able to respond to it. I've been under those types of leaders, and that's why I try to surround myself with people who have permission to call me out if I start straying. Why? Because raw ambition pours sand in the ministry gears, and that forces the machinery to produce an unholy product, which is human pride. Or maybe we could say that ego builds a cardboard fortress that humility must every day tear down. Now in contrast to that, a striking mark of holy ambition is that it elevates Christ and not the ambitious striver. And the only way to keep that balance is to continually make sure that Christ is increasing and I am decreasing. I wonder if we do that. Do we live our lives looking unto Jesus, caring what he thinks, and not worried about the critical judgments of those in this world? Or are we constantly thrown off balance by the world and its values? You see, in life where we put our focus is absolutely vital. I love a story about the late theologian and pastor Donald Barnhouse who pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 33 years. I think it exemplifies this perfectly. The writer recalls, One summer when I was just a boy, I took a trip to California with my family. It was one of the Eternity magazine tours, and there was a great crowd of people along, including Donald Gray Barnhouse. One day, a number of us went to Monterey, where there was an amusement park. In one building, we saw a very large barrel, about seven or eight feet in diameter, and about 30 or 40 feet long. It lay on its side and revolved, the challenge being to walk through it without being upset. For some reason, this was a particular challenge at Darnell Barnhouse, so he started through it. Unfortunately, he was only into the barrel about two to three yards when his feet got higher than the center of gravity, and down he went. The next thing we saw was that he was rolling around on the bottom. This, of course, would make him a holy roller. <clears throat> but that's not what we're here to talk about. The man who ran the amusement stopped the barrel from turning and Barnhouse came out. He said, start it up. I'm going to do it again. The man who controlled the barrel said, wait a minute. First, you should know there is a secret for walking through the barrel. Do you see that mirror at the other end? Barnhouse said, yes. What do you see in the mirror? I see you, answered Barnhouse. That's right, the man replied. You see me. Now, this time when you walk through the barrel, forget about the fact that it is turning. Don't even look at the barrel. Instead, look at me in the mirror. That way you will have a true sense of the vertical and you will be, be able to adjust the speed of your steps to keep from falling. This time when the barrel was started, Barnhouse walked right through it triumphantly. You may be thinking, what does that teach us? 
just this. The secret of walking through that barrel was to keep one's eyes on the man who runs it. And you know what? The same thing is true spiritually. Who is it that runs the affairs of this life with all its ups and downs and all its crisis, joys, and disappointments? Well, it's God, isn't it? Who has it all under control? God. How then is the Christian to walk through this life without losing his balance spiritually? The answer is by keeping our eyes upon the Lord. Look at verse 31 with me. Who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Bible scholars do not agree as to who is speaking in verses 31 through 36, John the Apostle or John the Baptist. Keep in mind there were no quotation marks in the early manuscripts. But since all scripture is inspired, it really makes little difference who said the words. But we do know who the writer is speaking about. I love this description of Jesus. John says that since Jesus came from above, he is above all. That's known as clarity in the Bible. Basically, whichever John you think is speaking is saying, Jesus is the only one who has ever came from heaven, and because of that, he is by definition above every other human being who has lived or ever will live. Jesus just didn't speak theoretically. He spoke experientially. When Noah and his sons were building the ark despite the mockery of those around them, Jesus was there. When Abraham lifted the knife to sacrifice Isaac, Jesus was there. When Moses lifted up the brass snake, Jesus was there. When Ezekiel prophesied to the wind, Jesus was there. When David slung that stone into Goliath's forehead, Jesus was there. And when Elijah called down fire from heaven to prove that Jehovah was the true God, once again, the Lord was there. Thus, Jesus doesn't teach from second-hand information. His is a first-hand eyewitness account. This is what makes verse 32 so absolutely stunning to me. Even though Jesus has stepped out of eternity and into time, by and large, the majority of the human race refuses to believe his testimony. Verse 33, please. Who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The one who does receive his testimony will, will pro proclaim loudly with John that God is true. For the one who believes God's commandments are also his enablements will find God true every single time. Those who refuse to excuse sin with psychological jargon and instead step out in faith to do things like flee youthful lust, to reckon the old man dead unto sin, and to walk in the spirit so as not to fulfill the lust of the flesh, will experience God's faithfulness at every step. Verse 34 teaches us that Jesus was given the spirit without measure. Jesus alone bears that distinction. We need to know that the prophets of old who spoke for God were led, empowered, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
John the Baptist himself was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Yet, the Spirit's ability to empower them was limited by their sinful, human, fallen natures. But Jesus Christ, whom God had sent infallibly, spoke the words of God because God had given him the Spirit without measure. We are told in Colossians 2.9 that in him the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. That means there were no limits to the spirits working through him. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The Bible says that God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. What that means is everyone knows implicitly in the deepest part of their being that God exists and that this world and this short life can't be all that there is. I am convinced that people believe this even if they insist they do not. Consider this comment a girl posted on an atheist website. She writes, I'm confused. I always believe science would be the cure for all my problems, but I don't know if I can keep living without the hope of everlasting life. I guess I'll just have to find a way to, for myself to make it through this meaningless existence. I just wish I knew of someone who could show me the path to eternal life. She finishes by saying this. Listen to the despair of this poor girl. She writes, If science can't provide the answers, then who can? Doesn't it seem like there's a higher power that gives our life's purpose? Well, science says there isn't. So, there isn't. Have you ever felt like that young girl? Can you in some ways relate to her angst? Have you ever wondered in an atheistic universe if there is any point at all? You know, hope is in short supply in this world today. If life as one sees it now on this pain-filled planet is all there is, then existence is indeed meaningless, and one must, as that girl said, just find our own way. I thought it was interesting that she realizes there is one thing that can make everything meaningful, and that would be the hope of eternal life. She once expected science to find a way for humans to live forever, but she has come to realize that they cannot. Now there is a positive and a negative aspect, aspect of this verse, so we'll separate them and look at both of them. First, we are told that he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you can just believe that Jesus is real. James tells us that even the demons believe that he is real. Now, this speaks of belief in a salvation sense that produces a godly life. I love A.W. Tozer here. Considering just giving lip service to Christ, he writes, But something less is among us, nevertheless, and we do well to identify it so that we may repudiate it. That something is a poetic fiction, a product of the romantic imagination and maudlin religious fancy. It is a Jesus, gentle, dreamy, shy, sweet, and almost effeminate, and marvelously adaptable to whatever society he may find himself in. He is cooed over by women disappointed in love, 
patronized by celebrities and recommended by psychiatrists as a model of a well-integrated personality. He is used as a means to almost any carnal end, but he is never acknowledged as Lord. These quasi-Christians follow a quasi-Christ. He finishes by saying, They want his help, but not his interference. They will flatter him, but never obey him. The last point I want to bring out is everlasting life does, does, does not just mean eternity in heaven. I don't know if you realize this, but the believer possesses eternal life right now. It is the life of God in the believer. The blessed truth of salvation is that the one who believes in the Son has eternal life as a present possession, not merely as a future hope. Later on, John would write another book called 1 John, and in it he will say, this is 1 John 5.11, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has a Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Please notice that John says God has given us eternal life. And that eternal life is occurring from the point of salvation throughout all eternity. It doesn't say that he that has the Son will have life, but who has the Son has eternal life right now. And this truth also gives us confidence that we will have that life forever. D.O. Moody once wrote, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal. A body that death cannot touch, the sin cannot taint. A body fashioned like into his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born in the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die, but that which is born of the Spirit shall live forever. Every once in a while you hear a stunning story about loved ones who were notified about a death in the family that hasn't actually happened. In this case, Alfred and Jerry Esposite of Massive Beach, New York, had been told that their son, Freddie, had been killed in a collision with a tractor trailer on a Pennsylvania highway. That was an understandable mistake on the authorities' part. For some reason, the man who died was carrying Freddie's driver's license. Freddie was supposed to be staying with his brother Chris. So when Chris got the word of his brother's death, he raced home. Jerry, the mother, relates what happened next. He goes downstairs in his brother's apartment and saw something on the couch. Chris poked at the lump under the blankets, and his brother awoke. Chris screamed, You're dead! You're dead! <laughs> Alarmed and now fully awake, <laughs> Freddie countered, No, I'm only sleeping. <laughs> you know, that's the story of our life as Christians. Thanks to the resurrection of Jesus, we don't die, we only sleep. The Bible speaks only of Christians who sleep. And even in our sleep, we are alive in Christ consciously, awaiting the, the day Jesus returns to claim his bride, the church. Now, but on the other hand, the one who does not obey the Son will not see life. This is the unpopular part of scriptures that speak of hell and the wrath of God. 
But as Christians, our job is to present unashamedly the Christian moral point of view. Why? Simply because it is the truth. No matter how unpopular it makes us, by the way, and we are becoming more and more unpopular, because the scripture tells us that we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which we shine like lights in the dark sky. That means we live among crooks and perverts, and we have the responsibility to warn them. We have to tell them that this is the way that God is, and your life has to be congruent with that reality. The fearful reality is that the wrath of God, which could be defined as his settled, holy displeasure against sin, continually abides on disobedient sinners who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. Why does the wrath of God abide on those who do not believe in his Son? Because he who does not believe is trampling on the sacrificial blood of his only begotten Son. This world is sinking fast in the quicksand of sin. God does not condemn us for being in that place, but only for refusing to reach out to the nail-pierced hand that is offering to pull us out. Now, just as I said, eternal life is the present possession of believers, so also is condemnation the present condition of unbelievers. The idea here is not that God will one day condemn sinners for their disobedient unbelief. They are already in a state of condemnation from which only saving faith in Jesus Christ can save them. The ultimate consequence of refusing to believe will be to experience God's wrath for eternity in the lake of fire. This is why God has left us on this earth for a time. So let me ask you a question. How do you live as you wait for the Lord's return? Let me close by illustrating this. Let me illustrate how we should live by these two contrasting stories from the book, God's Holy Method for Living, by the aforementioned Donald Gray Barnhouse. He writes, At the time of the First World War, there was a young aristocrat in England who married and then went off to the trenches on the continent. The young bride wrote that she was preoccupied with assisting in the war and was nursing in a certain hospital. She apologized for not writing off and saying that she was spending long hours every day tending to the war wounded. Sometime later, when her husband was coming home on leave, a friend who knew actually what was going on said to him, If I were you, I would not write in advance that I am coming. I would simply slip over quietly. Your husband did so. He went to the hospital where his wife was supposed to be working and found that those there had never even heard of her. She was not at her apartment either. Someone said, oh, she'll probably be at a dance at the Ritz today. The husband went there and found his wife in the company of another man. And Tommy found out a great deal more and was granted a divorce by the British authorities. Now the contrasting story is this. At the beginning of the same war, in the western part of America, there was a young couple who had made plans to be married. Everything was in readiness. They had a small cottage, they had furnished it, and the date for the marriage was set. Suddenly war was declared and the young man who was in the reserve was called up to active duty. 
He was to be sent to the Mexican border to train before being shipped off to France. On the day before he was to be sent off for training, the young woman said to him, I know that it's not quite the date for our wedding, but you might be ordered overseas immediately. You might be killed. And I would much rather go through life bearing your name than go through life always explaining that the man I love had been killed in the war. So let's be married now. On the next day they were married, and for their honeymoon the husband went with the troops, and the bride went alone to the little cottage. She was very lonely, of course, as you can imagine, and she longed for the day when she would see her husband again. Day after day he wrote her. He sent her gifts, a Navajo rug, some Mexican lace, some Indian pottery. Months passed, and the day came when she was so lonely she sat down on some pillows in front of the fireplace, spread out one of the rugs, put the other gifts on a piece of furniture, and then began to read through all the accumulated letters while having herself a good cry. Suddenly, as she was reading the letters, there was a step on the porch, the door opened, and there he was. He had sent a telegram, but it had been delayed, as telegrams often were in those days. He had arrived before it. When she saw him and realized that he was home, the young bride jumped to her feet, scattered the letters about, and even knocked over some of the pottery. A few of the letters even fell into the fire, but she did not care at all. He had returned to her, and having him, she had all. The one who tells these stories then wrote, Dear friends, our Lord Jesus is coming back, and he's going to find you and me in one of those two attitudes. Will you be flirting with the world, or will you be occupied with his love letters, his gifts, his work, and thinking of him? My beloved, I want to remind us this morning that Jesus is coming. The Bible says that everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's make sure that we are ready this morning. If you are unsure about that, Please see me after service. Lord, you are so wonderful to us, so gracious, so kind. You are everything I would want a God to be, and even more. Lord, you know every heart represented in this room. You know every relationship with you and the ones that may not have one with you. I pray that this would be the day, O oh God, that those of us who know you would be strengthened in our faith. If we need to be convicted, you would convict us. If we need to be encouraged, you would encourage us. You are able to do exactly what we need, Father, and we thank you for that. pray that as we go out of here this week, Lord, that we would be those lights that shine in a crooked and perverse generation. Let people see something different about Calvary Chapel, Princeton. We ask in your name, amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion. Ask Pastor John and Elder Haynes to come up.